Chapter 9 of The Octave of Claudius. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Octave of Claudius by Barry Payne. Chapter 9 Claudius breakfasted late and alone on Friday morning. The doctor had breakfasted long before, and Mrs. Lamb did not leave her room. The doctor excused her on the ground of ill health, and said that when Claudius returned, they would probably be leaving England. She needs a change. After breakfast, Claudius wrote two notes, one to Burnage and another to Lady Verrider. Francis was to take them to town and bring back answers. He was also to execute various other commissions for Claudius and make the necessary arrangements at the bank. Dr. Lamb was much more fertile than Claudius in suggesting what might be done. The doctor had a keen appreciation for the various luxuries and pleasures that £8,000 would procure. To Claudius, the chief point was that the £8,000 would free him from the necessity for thinking about pounds at all. He did not want nearly so much money, but the doctor insisted, and only by this arrangement carried out exactly as the doctor proposed it, would he be allowed to free himself of his obligations. The doctor had told him very little, and it was useless for him to make conjectures. Possibly he had done a very foolish thing, but there had seemed to be nothing else before him. It was just before dinner that Francis returned from London. He brought back with him two notes for Claudius. The first was from Henry Burnage, it contained this passage. Of course I shall be delighted to lunch with you at your hotel tomorrow. I need not inquire after the material prosperity of anyone who can afford to patronise such a place, and I am glad to think that all goes well with you. But why have you hidden yourself like this for so long? It was such an exceedingly bad thing to do that there is probably a woman at the bottom of it. And why are you leaving England? But we can talk about that tomorrow. Yes, I still write. My work is not of a class that could be called popular, nor should I wish it to be. I am writing a series entitled Inward Incidents, every week, in a new journal called The Latest Light. They are impressions of some emotional experiences in the life of a young and sensuous girl. I will bring you a number or two to see, but I dare say you won't make much of them. Are you married or engaged or anything, you ask? No, my dear Sandal, art is my only mistress. It is unaccountable to me, and I do not say it out of any spirit of boasting, but the fact is that I seem to have a horrible gift of seeing right through every woman I meet, an absolute incapacity for being illusionized. The wonder to me is that every other man does not show a similar incapacity. But they do not. Poor Luke Monset, you remember him, has just engaged himself to his principal's daughter. It is perhaps unnecessary to add that Henry Burnage had carried out his intention and proposed to Angela Witcherly, and that Angela had, in the kindest and most considerate way, refused him. It had been a great sorrow to Mrs. Witcherly, but her husband, who was not without shrewdness, had quite approved of the refusal. The other letter was briefer. It was from old Lady Verrider. My good Claudius, 
I've half a mind never to speak to you again. I've quarrelled with your father about you, and by way of showing your gratitude, you leave me severely alone for over a year. Well, you always were erratic, and honestly, I shall be very glad to see you again. Young men always do as they like. Now, I am going to be at home to you on Saturday afternoon, if you will come and have a talk and account for yourself a little, and in any case, you must dine with me on Saturday night. You shall take into dinner a good and sufficient reason for changing your mind about leaving England. I've recently discovered her, and love her, and her name's Angela. Always your friend, Jane Verrider. Claudius saw but little of the doctor during the day. He had been busy in his laboratory, but shortly before dinner he came into the library where Claudius was reading. "'Your carriage will come for you at twelve, precisely tonight,' he said. "'You forgot to tell Francis when you wanted it, and so I took the liberty. You see, I am not going to let you off one single minute of your imprisonment here. At twelve exactly the octave begins.' "'Imprisonment?' said Claudius. Good heavens! What a word for it! Why didn't you let me go to town today instead of Francis? I've been dying for want of occupation, except when I was driving your bay mare, and then I pretty nearly died for other reasons. You'd better sell her before she kills somebody. I shall be selling all three horses before I leave England. You couldn't have gone to town anyhow. You haven't the genius that Francis has for doing a whole lot of uninteresting things in the quickest and most practical way, without forgetting any of them. I'm afraid, though, you've been having a rather solitary time of it. I was at a point in my work when I simply couldn't leave it, and my wife— Oh, I hope she's better tonight. She says she is. She will dine with us. The doctor's shaggy eyebrows contracted a little. A curious case, he said, almost as if he were speaking to himself. A very curious case. Claudius did not like to hear the doctor speak of his wife as a case. He had a vague idea that to doctors all sick persons were cases, but this seemed to be in bad taste. He changed the subject. Doctor, he said, Francis brought me back from town a note from a man called Burnage whom I used to know at Cambridge. I won't say that he was an absolutely intimate friend of mine, but certainly I thought I knew him fairly well. I wrote to ask him to lunch with me tomorrow, a half-chafing letter. Well, he sends me back a long and serious reply, the most preposterous stuff, and it puzzles me. Has Burnage changed altogether since I knew him at Cambridge, or have I? Both said Dr. Lamb. As far as character is concerned, it is pretty certain that the boy is not father to the man. It was the ambition of my life at one time to be an evangelical preacher. I fainted on the first occasion when I went into a dissecting room, and I wrote a letter attacking vivisection to an evening paper. I fell in love several times, and I certainly wanted to make money, do you mean to tell me that the man who did these things is the man who speaks now? Of course not. 
Is the girl who flutters under a first kiss the same as the wearisome mammal who's the mother of your seventh? Of course not. That sounds brutal. But this man, Burnage, he wasn't particularly popular at Cambridge. He went in for despising athletics, which was a stupid kind of thing to do. But he wouldn't have written that letter then. He went in for being distinctly the man of taste. Certainly, corrupto optimi pessima. Carry precision in literary style too far, and you may get the precious and emasculated. Carry truth too far, and as you observe, you may get brutality. The worst possible taste is the result of an attempt to grow the best possible taste from anything but the best possible feeling. I don't fancy that the belief in the change of individuality could be carried to its logical conclusions, said Claudius. For instance, now, Doctor, when I was a boy of fourteen, I, in company with another boy, surreptitiously procured a bottle of whiskey. We put a lot of sugar into it to make it more palatable, and even then we didn't like it. And, of course, we had no previous experience with spirits. However, we both of us got completely drunk. We weren't discovered, as it happened, but we suffered punishment for all that. Well, I laugh about this, and yet for the life of me I can't help feeling ashamed of it. The boy that got so badly intoxicated on cheap whiskey wasn't the man I am now. Then why should I feel ashamed of his notions? Why indeed? To me, it seems that it is no more logical to be ashamed of one's past than to be ashamed of one's waste tissues. Be ashamed of your present if you like, but what has the past got to do with you? You are illogical because you are influenced by a long-formed habit. Habits of thought are just as hard to break off as other habits. After all, said Claudius, it's only a question of a point of view. The illogicality does no actual harm. In your case, probably not. But take our method of dealing with the criminal. We tie him tight down to his past, and we do our best to destroy his self-respect, which is the most important factor in the production of self-improvement. In fact, if we can make the man heartily ashamed of himself, we call him penitent. And we are very glad. When we do those things, we say that we are repressing crime or punishing crime. As a matter of fact, we are making crime. One night, a clerk, in the ordinary way a respectable clerk, allows the utter pig within him to come uppermost. There may perhaps be some exceptional combination of temptation and opportunity. Well, the utter pig is so outrageous that the man is imprisoned. His name is in all the papers. When he comes out, he finds not only that his self-respect is gone, but that the conditions of his life have been so altered that it is more difficult for him to get work and be decent and upright. Of course, it should be much more easy. Equally, of course, the man's self-respect should be strengthened in every possible way. That's all very well, Doctor, but what about the habitual criminal? Would it be of any use to take the habitual criminal, slap him on the back, tell him that there was plenty of good in him after all, and put him into a position of trust? Possibly not. I was not speaking of the habitual criminal. When the criminal has really ceased to be responsible, as in 
the case of some of the habitual female drunkards that you come across in the police reports, I think medical treatment might be good occasionally. And in cases where medicinal treatment could do nothing, obviously the really moral and humane thing is to kill the criminal. No one would hear of it. No one ever will hear of the obviously right thing to do. They mistrust it just because it's obvious. So we kill the man who has committed one murder. Often he is a man of talent and activity, with strong potentialities for good. A man who might do his part towards human happiness and human improvement. But we let the confirmed sot live and breed more sots. Remember, too, that it is under your penal system that the hardened criminal occurs, and that method which you considered ridiculous has at any rate never been tried. Would you try it? Oh, no. It's not much less ridiculous than you think it. It would succeed in a greater percentage of cases than you suppose, but even then the percentage would be very small. It is wrong because it is working at the wrong end. It is dealing with effect instead of cause, and that kind of mistake is a good deal more common than you would suppose. Even Darwin popularly supposed to be the exponent of a belief that man sprang from the monkey. Curious, all these popular suppositions are made the same kind of mistake in a different use. In the question of sex difference, he substitutes a teleological for an etiological explanation. Ah, said Claudius, laughing. It's just as well that we've got to get up and dress. You're taking me too deep. Deep? Good heavens, man, we aren't even paddling. Your education, pardon me, was too one-sided. It gave you much that I would like to have, and have not. But it was the kind of education which could let you hold a popular and imperfect notion of Darwinism and could let you be ignorant how far the theories of Darwin have since been modified or corrected. And you think that omission very important? Well, yes, for certain reasons, but we will discuss them after dinner. Subsequently, Claudius found Mrs. Lamb in the drawing room. She was wearing some fine diamonds. They were quite out of place, of course. The doctor raised his thick eyebrows. Yes, it was so. Of taste and tact, she had very little. Yet the greater things, the things that lie at the back of life, the things that we try to put away because they are too serious, seemed sometimes to rise and at once to claim her for their own, and to justify her. Twice that night she surprised Claudius. At dinner, in the course of ordinary talk, quite suddenly and quite calmly, she made a remark that was worse than irreligious. It was virulently blasphemous. It did not involve the use of any word that a decent woman could not use. But, for all that, it was indescribably shocking, even to the two men who were neither of them orthodox. The more shocking because it was so utterly unexpected. Claudius was staggered. For a moment he hardly knew what was happening, and then he became conscious that the doctor was talking to him about steamrollers, and, at the same time, looking at Mrs. Lamb, and that Mrs. Lamb seemed nervous and half-frightened. For the rest of dinner, she was almost entirely silent. She seemed to avoid her husband's glance. Her eyes looked hard and dry. After dinner, she excused herself to Claudius on the ground of her health. She felt tired and must go back to her room. 
Certainly she looked very pale. Claudius opened the door for her. The doctor stood at the dining table some distance away, absorbed in the choice of a cigar. "'You have chosen a queer time for leaving us,' she said. "'You should have stopped and driven over to London in the morning. However, good-bye.' She said it without the least trace of excitement. He took her hand. "'Don't let us all call it good-bye. I am coming back. I must have another opportunity to thank you for all of your kindness to me. It is au revoir, Mrs. Lamb.' She laughed said that she was not to be thanked at all, and passed into the hall. Claudius shut the door, and then noticed Mrs. Lamb's handkerchief lying on the floor. He picked it up and opened the door again to give it to her. As he did so, she called from halfway up the stairs. "'Have I dropped my handkerchief, Mr. Sandal?' "'Yes,' he said, "'and I shall bring it to you. "'Don't trouble to come down.' He went up and handed it to her. Without a word of thanks, she clutched his arm and said in a low, rapid voice, "'Listen quickly. You must not come back. For my own sake, for yours. I warned you before, and you wouldn't believe me. It's a matter of life and death.' "'I'm sorry,' said Claudius. "'But I must not discuss it at all. The doctor wants me, and I have given my word of honour. "'I shall do all I can to prevent your return. I've had ideas.' But Gabriel used to say my day was coming, and I know now what he meant. It may come before I can carry the ideas out, and if I fail, you must break your word. Ah, if I only had time to tell you, it would be less wrong to break your word. No, no, said Claudius gently, withdrawing his arm. You must not think about that, Mrs. Lamb. Everything will be all right. You need have no fear. Good night again. She put one hand to her throat for a second, and seemed to be trying to speak again, but she said nothing. She turned and ran upstairs. "'Poor lady,' said Claudius to himself. She was, he felt sure now, far more ill than he had supposed. She had evidently not known what she was saying. In the dining-room he found the doctor, leaning back in his chair, smoking placidly. "'Sandal!' he said. There are two alternatives between which every night after dinner I find it difficult to choose. If I perform a simple amputation of the end of my cigar, I find that the draught is good, but that the leaf unrolls. If, on the other hand, I make a wedge-shaped incision at a distance of one-eighth of an inch from the end, the leaf does not unroll, but the draught is less satisfactory. What am I to do? What do you do? Well, said Claudius, I've tried both ways, and I've always found both of them answer perfectly. But if your cigars won't work, why don't you try a pipe? Sublime in its simplicity. I will. It's only my own method with the irreclaimable criminal adapted. Have some more wine? No? Then let's go to the study out of the smell of the mutton. In the study, the doctor suddenly changed his tone. Sandal, he said nervously. I've been thinking it over, and I've had an uneasy feeling that I've been taking advantage of you in this business. I hurried you. I rushed it too much. No, said Sandal. When I spoke, I spoke deliberately. The chances of my book are, I am persuaded, worth nothing. As a schoolmaster or a secretary, I might have scraped up enough to repay you what you have spent upon me, but there would still be much of another kind that could not be repaid.' 
and I have some doubt whether I could stand the life. Doctor, I'm sick of pettiness and struggling. I had so much of it in the months before you found me, and I'm equally sick of working for merely selfish and ignoble reasons. Let me be some good to somebody. The work that you do is great, and if I can help you at all in it, I ask nothing better. No, my one objection is that I do not in the least want eight thousand pounds. No more of that, said the doctor. See here, I don't want reputation. I only want to get the knowledge. But the reputation will come, and you will not share it. Money, too, will come, though I shall take no steps to acquire it. You will not have any of it. You are merely taking your share in advance, and you must see your own point of view. The law does not recognize any such arrangement as we have made together. By the law I am wrong, but there are grades in wrongness, and if I did not carry out my side of that arrangement, I should be more wrong. If I allowed you to give yourself to me and gave you nothing in return, I should stand condemned by my own moral sense. Curious thing my own moral sense is. Owing to my disregard of individuals, it is never affected by any personal bias, and it is always perfectly just. It will let me use any means, however wrong, that are requisite for the great end that I have in view. But it will not let me use means that are more wrong than is really requisite. I don't ask or expect you to listen to this, of course. If any man talked to me after dinner about his moral sense, I'd go to sleep under his very eyes and tell him afterwards why I did it. But, oh, I'm not going to sleep. Very well, then. We let things stand just as we arranged last night. I was more or less in a hurry, said the doctor, and consequently I hurried you. But there is some excuse for me. When you first came here, my wife was, for her, unusually well. She... Well, you saw for yourself tonight. I must get her abroad as soon as possible, and... Yes, yes, I understand, said Claudius. They fell to chatting of other subjects. The doctor was, as usual, sometimes enthusiastic, sometimes bitter, and sometimes blasphemous, and sometimes showed the clearest judgment and sense. He began by saying how glad he was that Claudius had friends in London who would help him to enjoy his eight days. Otherwise, you'd have died of ennui. One can enjoy nothing alone except solitude. And now I come to think of it, said Claudius, I suppose I must make rather a point of not dying. To die intentionally, the doctor said, smiling, would of course be fraudulent. Otherwise your death would merely end the bargain. I take the risk of that, just as I take the risk of my own death. By the way, death isn't altogether uninteresting. What is death, doctor? Good heavens, man! If I could define it, I should know enough about it to avoid it forever. To be out of harmony with one's environment is to die. If you can stand a definition that tells nothing and means nothing, death is the price we pay for being multicellular. That's rather better. The happy protozoan, with his single cell, never dies. Never. At any rate, by natural death. The strength of wind blows down the tower, but does not damage the single brick. "'Yes,' said Claudius rather impatiently. "'That accounts for the body, looks at the mechanical side. "'One knows all that. "'Our bodies are rolled round in Earth's diurnal course, "'with rocks and stones and trees. "'But I have a personality, feel sure of it. "'What becomes of that?' "'The doctor altered the position of the lamp "'and spread out the fingers of his great hand. 
You observe, he said, the shadow of my hand on the wall. I take away the hand, the shadow goes. That's the second analogy I've used tonight, and I might as well be a curate. However, no matter. Take away the body and the personality goes. We find them always together, not connected, but simultaneous. Is it unreasonable to suppose that if the body breaks up, the personality suffers some similar dispersion? And, he added with sudden passion, is there the least comfort, the least satisfaction, in finding that the conclusion, or any other conclusion, is not unreasonably to suppose? Damn it, man, why do you take me on to the subject of my greatest difficulties? The questions that you ask are just the questions that you may ultimately help me to answer. The thing that most surprises me in man is his lethargic, contented ignorance about some essential points. He has been here so long, and he does not yet know how he gets here. How he goes, or how to influence with, how to influence with certainty, and to a really appreciable extent, his moral character or his intellectual abilities. There are moments when he cares, and gets very nervous. But, as a rule, he is quite comfortable sits before the fire, reads the daily papers, and says he is master of his fate. Master of his fate, indeed. Never was there a more astounding and audacious lie. Yes, he said at another point in the conversation later in the evening. That is, put in a few words, the aim of my work, to make the man master of his fate. Ah, Sandal, I've been ordinary enough. I've loved a woman, I loved my child, and my child died. I have had delight out of good books and good wine. I felt fear, envy, sorrow, hate. Gone through every experience which could show that I do not transcend humanity. But my work is not ordinary. It is on a higher plane. The time has come for man to hasten his own evolution. For the slow, crude modifications of nature he must substitute his own thought, his own researches. He must put truth into the boast that he is master of his fate. Doctor, said Sandal, you told me once that you believed in God, without giving any definition. Do you believe in the will of God? The phrase, Dr. Lamb answered, frowning slightly, is anthropomorphic. To ascribe will to God is to ascribe a limitation which, except to a theologian with his talk of the self-conditioned, must seem futile. Well... Put it in other words, do you believe that there is something which you cannot thwart? I dislike the word thwart, interrupted the doctor. I believe that there is a tendency which man can neither retard nor accelerate. Ah, said Claudius, now a moment ago you said that the time had come for man to hasten his evolution. I am not illogical. The time has come, the tendency is here, Thanks to the primitive instincts of reproduction and self-preservation, we have arrived slowly at what we are. Thanks to the evolved mind of man, we shall arrive more quickly at what we shall be. Evolution itself has provided that which will accelerate evolution. The tendency is not accelerated by man, but by itself acting through man. I see what you mean, but how will it happen? If I said that I myself was the point of the new departure, you would probably consider me a megalomaniac. But then you are not yet in possession of the facts. Possibly, I may only live to see the bare commencement of the results of my own work, if even that. But I trust I shall not die until I am assured that those results must ultimately follow. Is there any satisfaction to be got out of being the slave of a tendency? 
Can one be said to be the slave of a master that is doing all that the slave wishes? The tendency is but part of the manifestation of God, and, to the man of science in my position, the love of God has passed from a religious duty into a logical necessity. God, so far as God is revealed by our knowledge of nature, is taking man to the heaven where he would be. Sandal, you've often thought me brutal and once said so. It is because I do not regard the individual but the race, and what the race may ultimately be. But think whether my view, or yours, is most in accord with the laws of nature. The manifestation, if you like the term, of the will of God, it is on the just and the unjust alike that the sun shines or the tower of Siloam falls. There is no regard there of the individual. A moment ago you spoke of your personality, as though it were so precious a thing that you could not bear to lose it. No, I am not sneering at you. The instinct for self-preservation is almost universal, but do not let it make you lose sense of proportion. Read a manual of astronomy. Read Darwin. We all crib his facts even when we correct his theories. Familiarize yourself with great tendencies, great members, great space. You may still believe that you are something, but to give that up when your time comes will seem to you, in a delightful obedience that is no slavery, to be far better. The doctor, who had paced up and down the room as he was talking, now seated himself facing the fireplace. He had seemed to speak with sincerity, enthusiasm, almost excitement. But with him, excitement did not slowly die. It vanished like a flame blown out. As he filled another pipe, he remarked in a matter-of-fact way, Look here, Sandal. If you write me a cheque for fifty with tomorrow's date, I'll cash it for you now. You may want small sums tomorrow before it is convenient for you to change a cheque. Thank you, said Claudius. He did not quite seem to be hearing and understanding. However, he wrote the cheque, took the notes and thrust them into a pocket, and thanked the doctor again. For a few moments there was silence, and then Claudius said, And I'm going away to spend eight thousand pounds, or as much of it as I can, in eight days. I feel like a Bibulon's coaster, who has come into a little money and means to go on the burst with it. You will do in your way what he would do in his, but the ways are widely different. Don't frighten yourself with phrases. Enjoy. Enjoy. Before Claudius could answer, Francis opened the door. Mr. Sandal's carriage is here. Both men glanced at the clock. It was five minutes to twelve. As Francis shut the door, the doctor said, Don't be impatient. You have tried to earn what you are now going to have, but you have failed. I know the feeling that you are going through, but remember, you will earn fully afterwards all the enjoyment that eight days can bring you. Ah! You will do far more than that. Words cannot express the obligation under which I shall be to you, or the delight which I feel in having found you. They had passed into the hall as the doctor talked. Claudius smiled drearily. How do you know that I shall come back? You must have me watched. I know it because you have truth and courage. You will not be watched, of course. The greater your freedom and the law will not recognize our contract, the more such a man as you will feel bound. For a minute or two they chatted. The clock had begun to strike the hour as they shook hands and Francis opened the carriage door. The doctor waved his hand as Claudius stepped into the carriage. Au revoir, Sandal. Saturday after next, at the same hour, hope you will have a good time. I'll give your message to my wife. The carriage drove off. In the window above the entrance doors, 
There was a light. It was the window of the room that had been the nursery. The blind was held back a little. Mrs. Lamb was watching the lights of the carriage passing down the drive. As the carriage turned onto the road, Claudius thought he heard a cry. The coachman must also have heard it, for he almost pulled up his horses, and then, probably with a reflection that, after all, it was none of his business, drove on again. The doctor, standing alone in the hall, heard that cry very distinctly. It was the scream of a hysterical woman, and it came from the room overhead. He wrinkled his brow a little, and his lips drew back, showing his great white teeth. He crossed the hall and took down a light riding whip. Then he went slowly upstairs, humming to himself. He opened the door of the nursery. On a chest of drawers stood a couple of lighted candles in tall candlesticks that Mrs. Lamb had brought from her own room. On the floor against the window she lay face upwards, chuckling, panting, sobbing, occasionally speaking incoherently. Gabriel Lamb closed the door behind him. Get up, he said curtly. No, no, she moaned. Don't come near me, Gabriel. Don't touch me. In four quick steps, he had crossed the room and was by her side. She began to scream again. He dragged her to her feet, and as she went staggering away from him with arms widespread, he struck her savagely across the back again, and again with the whip. The immediate effect of this brutality was that the hysterical fit stopped suddenly. She reached the mantelpiece and stood clutching it, and facing her husband, her bosom rose and fell quickly and deeply, with anguish in her eyes. But her self-control had partly returned, and when she spoke it was in a subdued voice. Why? Why have you done this awful thing? For two reasons. When you come to think over it, you will see that you know them both. She could think of nothing. The blows that he had given her stung and throbbed. From sheer physical pain she began to cry quietly. Oh, Gabriel, you have hurt me so. You have hurt me so. You had better go to bed now, he opened the door for her. I will put the lights out here. Be careful not to drop your handkerchief as you go out this time. Without another word, she went into her room. The doctor went downstairs, through his study, and into the laboratory. He switched on the electric light, flung the riding whip into a corner, and began work. End of chapter 9 Recording by Rich Burgess